you never buy to buy. You never invest just for the sake of investing. Make sure that it's a wise investment, that it's a wise move, and it makes sense for where you are in the market. You're listening to Investing for Good, a show that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are investing to build a legacy for their families, create a meaningful and intentional life by design, and impact the world around them. And now, here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey, everyone. Annie Dickerson here together with my co-host, Julie Lamb. Julie, how are you? I'm doing really good. How are you doing, Annie? I am fantastic. I wanted to ask you because it's relevant to our conversation today with Ken Corsini. He is the founder with his wife, Anita, of Red Barn Homes. And also some of our listeners may recognize him from HGTV because he and his wife host the show Flipper Flop Atlanta. And so I wanted to ask you because you've invested in turnkey homes before. So tell us what was that experience? What has that experience been like? Yeah, it's well, you know, I did not invest first in turnkey properties. The first thing that I ended up doing out of state was actually I was trying to go for the Burr strategy, bought it from a wholesaler for really cheap and, you know, tried to renovate it and rent it out and tried to do the refi, ran into a million problems. <laughs> I won't go into that now. But it was because of that experience with all of the headaches. And I mean, it was just so many different things that I just wanted something that I could buy and hold on to cash flowing that was was renovated and I didn't have to worry about repairs. So no phone calls, you know, on the weekend when you're with your family talking about, you know, the water overflowing or, you know, (laughs) the water heater needing to be replaced or things like that. And so I was intrigued by the turnkey potential and it's been a good experience. I've purchased a couple now and it's great because I never hear from them, you know, other than to check in (laughs) just to see because it's a turnkey company. So they call you and they say, Hey, how's everything going? Every month I get a phone call and they say, how's everything going? I'm like, fine. Like as long as the rent's coming in, (laughs) I don't care. Like, you know, half the time I don't even answer her phone call when she calls me, but yeah. And it's great because there's never any unexpected expenses, which I think is the thing when you own single family homes or your own properties, not in syndications that can you know, it can weigh on you, you know, when you get those phone calls and it's so much. And so just being able to buy a property and most of them, they call them turnkey because they're already renovated. They've bought a property that is usually in disrepair and they get it for cheap because of that. And they go in and they have crews that do this on large scale. So they're able to do it for cheap and then they get it rented out for you. And then you own a property that from the day you close is cash flowing. There's no waiting for it. It's like the day you close, you know, whatever 30 days later, you get your first check and that's it. And that continues for months, you know, and years as it has for me for the turnkey. So I love it. I I mean, I think it's been, you know, a great opportunity. Now you certainly don't make as much as you otherwise would on a burr property, or, you know, if you bought a property wholesale or you, you know, were able to do that. But, you know, when you're doing that, that's a lot of headache too, a lot of headaches. And I've had a handful of those. There's only one that I hung on to that was not turnkey just because the margins are so great that it doesn't matter. Even if I get those phone calls like, Hey, you know, know, this is broken, that's broken. It's like, ah, okay, fine. So it dropped from a 65% annualized return down to a 50%. What am I going to do? You know? (laughs) 
Boo-hoo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's like, a, you know, if you can, but at that deal, I mean, I bought that one back in 2016. So, you know, you don't find many deals like that mm. anymore where you can get that kind of ROI, but yeah. Sounds like a dream to have like a newly restored property where everything's mm. brand new and then you got mm-hmm. a nice tenant in there and then you, yeah. you get rid of all of the headaches. I mean, I'm yeah. still getting most of our properties in our portfolio, our personal portfolio are older properties. So we're always mm-hmm. getting calls from our property yeah. managers like this yeah. broke and this needs to be replaced. This needs to be, you know, and so it's a constant. I mean, the cash flow is great on paper. Mm-hmm. And if we didn't have yeah. all those repairs, it would be great month to month, very steady. But unfortunately, with those older properties, there's always something and you never know what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. So it's always yeah. a surprise. <laughs> yeah. And that's so true, even in multifamily. I mean, that's why in what we do, we stick with, you know, the B-class properties, 1980s, 85 or newer, you know, because once you start pulling back the the drywall and, you know, ripping up the floors and stuff, you just never know what you're going to find. And, you know, we, it can be a lot of unnecessary worry and headache for a few more dollars. It's really not worth it, you know? So. Absolutely. Well, it's very interesting because on this episode, Ken talks about how when he first got into turnkey properties and he, he was really, you know, building up this business to connect investors from out of state to these turnkey mm-hmm. properties. And he said turnkey wasn't even really a thing back then. And he and his wife had built up this business from scratch, really starting out doing wholesale. And then when the crash of 08 happened, sort of pivoting and getting into turnkey properties. And then over the last decade or so, really growing that business and then getting on HGTV as well and that whole adventure. And then now they've expanded and they've created Red Barn Real Estate, which now they are a full-blown brokerage, which I think is a great time for that. Yeah, I think one, you know, interesting thing about his story that I feel like resonates a lot with us and what we do and, you know, is really paying attention to what's happening around you and really being prepared to pivot. And, you know, I think that's something that in business, you have to always be thinking about short term, but always looking kind of far off in the distance too, and always being prepared to, you know, how can I capitalize on everything that's coming our way? Because a lot of his story is identifying the opportunity when for everyone else there, they thought there is no opportunity it's bottom of the market, things look terrible. And so it's always like, how can we, you know, look and stare it in the face, like look at, you know, everything. The, the potential for all of this crazy stuff to happen, stare it in the face and ask yourself, like, how can we pivot? And I feel like that one trait for him sounds like it's been a central theme for his success. And, you know, at the very end, we talked about, well, where are we at now? And, you know, what should investors be doing? And so, yeah, hang, watch the show or listen to the episode because we talk a lot about his insights now that he's been in real estate for over a decade and, you know, where he thinks we are and, and where we're headed and, and how to prepare for that. So, and I think it's a fun little story how he got into real estate in the first place as well. He sort of stumbled into this yard sale and found these real estate CDs just (laughs) fully like unopened (laughs) and this treasure for 10 bucks that launched his real estate career. But for all our listeners, if you are looking for a hidden treasure, be sure to grab a free copy of our book, Investing for Good. Who knows? Maybe it'll be the one thing that launches your real estate investing journey. In it, we go all through you know, what it means to be a passive investor, why multifamily is so great, and also what to watch out for, especially now. And so to get all that information and to get a free copy of the book, just text the word book to 41404. 
All right. And with that, let's go ahead and jump into our conversation with Ken Corsini. Ken, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, Annie. Thanks so much for having me. We're thrilled to have you here. Now, Ken, you and your wife, Anita, founded Red Barn Homes in 2005, I believe, and have since bought and sold hundreds of homes. I think it's over 800 at this point. Is that right? Yeah, I think I stopped counting a couple of years ago. So I just say 800. <laughs> it's, it's somewhere yeah. north of that for sure. Wow. <laughs> And on top of that, you're the hosts of the HGTV show Flipper Flop Atlanta, and you're the host of the podcast Deal Farm. So on top of all that, you've reached this massive success in real estate. And it's easy from the outside, I think, to think, oh, Ken, he's got it made. He's always been in real estate. He's done hundreds of homes. And But I know that you and Anita really have built this thing from the ground up. So take us back to the beginning. I mean, these days you've got hundreds of homes that you've done and you've got a team behind you, but take us back to that very first property before you knew that this whole real estate thing could be a viable venture. So tell us how did real estate actually even make it onto your radar in the first place? Sure. And I'll take one second to plug the new book that's dropping tomorrow, Ooh. Profit Like <gasps> the Pros at Bigger Pockets. Exciting. Because I, I tell it in the introduction, the story of how we got into real estate and kind of the background of me being that kid entrepreneur, you know, the, the kid in school who's selling the bubble gum out of his locker to the kid in college who had my own little business painting, you know, addresses on curbs. I mean, it was, it's been this progression <laughs> of like, okay, you got this entrepreneur gene. And I, you know, I graduated from the University of Georgia in 99, and I got a fantastic job at a you know, Fortune 500 company called Marshall McLennan, a big insurance brokerage. I was working in software over there, and I loved it. I mean, even my clients were Fortune 500 clients. I hit assistant vice president at 27 in this big company. I mean, it was a great career path, but I was not fulfilled. I just When you've got that entrepreneur bent, and you're making that commute to a nine to five, and you're just discontent. And so for me, it started probably a good three or four years into that career that I just was uncomfortable. I knew I needed to figure out what my stepping off point was. What did it look like to spread my wings as an entrepreneur? And so I, I looked at a couple of different things. I looked at opening a Chick-fil-A, believe it or not, because I had worked at Chick-fil-A in high school and I had a relationship with corporate Chick-fil-A and we had a lot of good friends there. And I almost went down that road and I was sort of weighing that against real estate. And I'd always loved real estate. I'd loved, you know, looking at new houses, walking through houses. And funny enough, I actually stumbled across an info product from like the 1980s at a <laughs> garage sale. This was in that you know period of time when I'm working at my corporate job and it was Carlton Sheets, no money down info product. And it was CDs at the time. Luckily it wasn't cassette tapes. It was at least CDs. <laughs> and I was like, well, for $10, let's go check this thing out. It was still in the cellophane wrapper, take it home, look at this workbook, start popping these CDs in. I just fell in love with real estate. This was probably 2002, 2003. I mean, so there wasn't all these resources that there are online. Like this is where you got your information was one of these old school info, info marketing products. And so for about a year to two years, I just wore those CDs out. I listened to them back and forth to work over and over again. And I really just fell in love with the notion of becoming an investor and doing real estate full time. And that sort of culminated in, into me literally walking into my boss's office one day and just said, I can't do this anymore. This is a great job. I love all you guys. It's been a fantastic journey, but I have to give this a, a try or it's going to eat me alive. And he understood and they were very nice about it and helped me kind of transition out. 
And then I, I just sort of jumped off the cliff and said, let's figure this out, see if we can make it work. And this was 2005. So things were great in 2005. You know, <laughs> we sure were. The market was booming in 2005. <laughs> but that's really, that's sort of how my journey started in real estate. Wow. Whoever had originally bought those CDs and l didn't open them, man, they lost out on a big treasure and the universe brought you right there. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's, it's funny because those sort of, that sort of education, those sort of products, they're not for everybody. And I, and really there's only, there's only so many people that I feel are cut out to take something like that, digest it, and then actually implement it. And I guess mm -hmm. I just had the gene that I was, you know, I was motivated enough to do that. Yeah. And man, Chick-fil-A, if I had to pick a fast food restaurant franchise, I would pick Chick-fil-A too. And you could still, maybe that's still in your future. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? It's funny. <laughs> ultimately, it's like, I love Chick-fil-A. I don't know if I can supersize people for the rest of my life. <laughs> and then, you know, it's funny is how much they've even grown since then. Because again, this was the early 2000s. It's, a, it's amazing how successful the operators are that are at Chick-fil-A. Fun career path either way. Yeah. <laughs> well, so tell us, okay, so you're going back and forth to work. You still have your job at this point. This is like 2003 to 2005-ish. So you're listening to these CDs over and over. And so at what point did you decide, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to do it. You, I mean, what was it about that? And then what point did you get to? And then what did you do next after you quit your job? I'll take another step back. So part of this entrepreneurial bet led Anita and I to build our own house in 2003. And this was a big a big component for us. Because again, we're in our, our early 20s. We don't have any extra money. I mean, like we barely have two nickels to rub together. And somehow you remember early 2000s, anybody could get a loan. So like the timing was really good that we could get this construction <laughs> loan. And we found two acres. We built this house. And this is when I was working my full-time job. Well, amazingly, because we did this, we had some equity to play with. That was the only way that we really had any additional income to do anything with. And it was, I don't know, maybe forty, fifty thousand dollars in equity, which you know, in your mid-20s, it's like, okay, this is burning a hole in my pocket. A lot of money. Yeah. What can I do with this to, <laughs> to take it to the next level? And I actually found a group out of the Northwest, and they it wasn't a franchise and it wasn't just training and consulting. It was somewhere in between where they were teaching their wholesaling model. And so for me, that seemed like a safe route. Like, let's go, let's, let's go ahead and pay for this education. Let's pay for these, this group to kind of come alongside me and mentor me. And it, it actually worked out really well. It was, it was a good $40,000 investment because within the first two years, I had done 75 deals with their support, wow. which was a great, you know, again, it took a lot of motivation and commitment to make it happen, but it was a, it was a good route for me to take there in 2005. So you're doing wholesale deals to start. Is that right? Yeah, it was interesting. In hindsight, they were wholesale deals. It was a really unique model and it really only worked back then. Maybe it could work now. And it was interesting. We would actually run ads for people that want to lease purchase. We would then kind of bring them in, get them to give us like a retaining fee to, to work with them. And then we would go find a house that, hey, this is the house that I ultimately want to buy. And then we would pair them with an investor, an investor then that would buy the house, sit on it for two years while they lease purchased it from them. So we, started, we were sort of connecting people, connecting people that want to lease purchase and connecting investors. And it was a really unique, interesting model. It really worked at the time. It worked right up until about 2008 when everything mm. just tanked and, and there was no appreciation because <laughs> it really sort yeah. of was predicated on these houses appreciating. Mm -hmm. And everybody just assumed back then that, yeah, we can, you know, you can take a pulse and get a mortgage and houses will always appreciate. It. It'll be great. And then obviously we know that that was not the reality. So 2008, that business, they went out of business and I was sort of forced with, okay, well, what do I do next? This is the only thing I've done in real estate thus far. And honestly, in hindsight, the downturn is maybe the best thing that happened to me because mm -hmm. it was, you know, all these other investors who, you know, were over leveraged, they went out of business. 
And all these banks just started throwing inventory on the MLS. And it was the same houses that were literally, literally, I'm not even kidding you, in Atlanta that were selling in the high 200s, I could buy for $20,000 within one year. Mm-hmm. It was insane here. And so for me, I didn't, I wasn't over leveraged because I was sort of the, the middleman for that model. And it was just an opportunity for it just to go hog wild and build my business. And that point was when we transitioned our business to the turnkey model, where we were buying these foreclosures, fixing them up, and then selling them to out-of-state investors. And that was our model for a good 10 years. Ah, okay. So you sort of had built up some capital doing this almost like a wholesale, but lease purchase, these lease options. Uh, is it the same lease purchase and lease options? That's uh, there's some model? technical differences, but I think okay. it's fairly interchangeable. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So you're, you're doing these lease purchase deals and sort of being the middleman and putting people together, which actually helps both sides as a win-win situation. Right. And so you're building up some capital and then the crash happens. And at that point, instead of just running the other way and saying, all this real estate thing isn't for me, you actually were able to pivot and do even more deals and actually buy deals, which is incredible. I was lucky because most people that were in real estate at the time, they were using leverage. And I was lucky enough. I wasn't really. I was the middleman. I was basically a wholesaler connecting people and building in these assignment fees. And so I just lucked out. I mean, if I had gone out there in 2005 and bought a bunch of properties, I would have been up a creek. I just, you know, was very fortuitous that I hadn't gone down that road. And, and I was perfectly poised to just start buying properties. I have a quick question. You mentioned spending $40,000 on a program for coaching. Yep, That's a big investment. And I know that there's a lot of people out there who, um, you know, come across mentorship programs, coaching programs, and they're always very skeptical and hesitant. What was it about that program that you knew or you were so sure that you know you were ready to plunk down that kind of money because I'm a huge believer of getting coached. Uh, we have many coaches. We are also coaches ourselves. And I'm a huge believer of it, of accelerating where you're trying to get to. Yeah. What was at that event? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people out there listening who think, hmm, maybe I should go out there and get coached. But everyone thinks you know, $40,000 is a lot of money. So I'm just curious, what was it about that that you were like, okay, this is it. I'm going to plunk down that, that chunk of change. <laughs> you know, I mean, Grant, and this is 27-year-old Kent Corsini, who was super naive and probably just <laughs> way overly eager uh-huh. and just assumed, you know, everything was rose. Luckily, interestingly enough, this company ended up going out of business and they ended up being a little bit crooked when it was all said and done. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, but it didn't really matter because for me, I learned what I needed to learn. And I put into place what I needed to put in place and I I had success Mm -hmm. at it. And there were other people in their program that I was able to talk to. Um, They weren't hiding necessarily anything. Other other people who were having success. And it's like anything. Some people have the success because they put in the time and the energy. And some people Mm -hmm. didn't have success because they didn't put in the time and energy. It really boiled it down to that. And Mm -hmm. I was eager and motivated enough that I was going to make it work no matter what. I did. Luckily, the, the model worked for me. Yeah, but I, yeah. I'm right there with you. I'm a believer absolutely in accelerating your growth mm-hmm. through either mentorship or masterminds or coaching or whatever it is. And I've, I've invested mm-hmm. in masterminds, man, for the last seven years. And that's mm-hmm. it's not inexpensive. I mean, I, I'm well into the six figures on masterminds at this point. Oof. And it's, and I, I don't regret it for one second. I mean, it's yeah. the way you got to look at it is if you did one deal that you would not have otherwise done in that year, it more than paid for itself. Mm-hmm. And we do, I mean, we do joint ventures and all sorts of new strategies and stay cutting edge as a result of being in these types of groups. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like anything else. If you want to do something, surround yourself with other people who are doing what you want to do. And then some, and that's, you know, when you surround yourself with people who are having that kind of high level success, there's, you know, kind of no way to go down, yep. <laughs> no right. way to fail when you're surrounding yourself with that kind of folks. So yeah, sorry. I wanted to kind of take it back because I thought that was really interesting. $40,000 even today is a lot of money to invest in a coaching program. So I thought that that was really interesting. And I know a lot of people have questions around whether it's worth it and whether it's, you know, truly valuable, but for you, it sounds like you were able to take a lot out of that. So that's awesome. Yep. yep. So yeah, take us to the next step. Like you did the wholesaling thing and, and how many properties were you wholesaling at that by that time? We're doing, so we did, and again, in that kind of interesting lease purchase model, I did about 75 in those first two years. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. So it was about, you know, three a month or something like that. And then again, 2008 happened. And I just, I remember in January, 2008, thinking to myself, what am I going to do next? Do mm-hmm. I stay in real estate? Should I pivot and try to make this work? This company mm-hmm. just went out of business. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I know all these houses that I, you know, just sold are worth half of what they were. It's like, this is scary. What do I do right now? And I just sort of stuck with it. I decided let's just adapt. Let's pivot and give it another year and just mm-hmm. see if we can make something work. Cause I really, really, really did not want to go back to my nine to five. Like I had no intention. <laughs> I know of, how you, you know, feel. <laughs> you with your hat in your hand back to the same group of people. Like I tried, I couldn't make it work. I, that was yeah. not an option for me. Mm-hmm. I was going to make mm-hmm. it work. And again, luckily, you know, you just sort of watched the market unfold at the time where all of a sudden there were just so many REOs flooding the market for just so mm-hmm. cheap. And I, th- it's funny at the time, nobody had coined the phrase turnkey in 2008. Mm-hmm. You know, it's right. funny, but a lot of us were just sort of figuring out this model simultaneously around the country where, you know, we, we could buy it, we could fix it pretty inexpensively, we could lease it, and we had these amazing cash flowing assets. And it's like, okay, mm-hmm. somebody wants this asset. <laughs> and what we found mm-hmm. is that, you know, California investors were shocked that they could buy an $80,000 <laughs> house in Georgia, fully fixed up, getting $1,000 in rent. And so I plugged in with a number of aggregators, a number of groups and, you know, RIAs. And I, I would fly back and forth to California and speak at events and do bus tours. I'd bring busfuls of California investors to Georgia. And we sold a ton of turnkey houses. You're familiar. <laughs> Obviously, you're laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm giggling about. <laughs> because we live in San Francisco. And so it's always embarrassing whenever, you know, I invest out of state and whenever I talk with people at RIA meetings and networking and I tell them I'm not, they, I hate it because I feel like there's like that <laughs> stamp on my head that says, oh, it's you, the California investor, you know. <laughs> um, but yes, it's true. That was a very similar story for me as well. You know, back in 2009, bought some properties here in the Bay Area and got some equity, moved out of state when I realized I could cash flow. And I was like, cash, what does that even mean? Because everything we were buying, even buying at the bottom of the market meant break even, right? If that maybe, maybe 50 bucks, you know, maybe a hundred bucks, but certainly not you know, three, four, 500 bucks per door. It was, was not even like that even back then. So, so yeah, that's, that's interesting. I love what you talked about, you know, you know, pivoting and adapting in the face of potential danger. And I think that's something that Annie and I talk about often as well. And, and, you know, you have to be able to, when things start to go sideways, as they have in many different ways this year, you have to be ready to identify the opportunities and to see how the market is shifting and to be able to adapt to that if you want to be able to survive. And I'm a huge believer of things not happening to us, but things are actually happening for us, right? And I think for you, it sounds 
like that was something that that definitely happened that, you know, 2008 came and you were forced to kind of rethink everything. And then this launched the next 10 years of your business and, and what you guys were doing with the turnkeys. So yeah. over that time, 10 years, that's a, that's a long time. Why in that time did you not move away from it? Was it just the business was so good? I mean, when I think back 10 years, 2008, so 2008 to 2018, so much growth and so much opportunity. So it kind of yeah. makes sense, especially with the cash flow industry. So are you no longer doing that anymore from 2018 to now, or are you guys still doing the turnkeys? You know, we don't really do much turnkey anymore. It's funny I say that, but we've got a, a new development we're building right now of turnkey new construction houses, but it's sort of, it's a one-off. So we do some one-off. I will say this in 2009, during the downturn, I went and got my master's degree from Georgia Tech in building construction because I knew there would be an opportunity to do new construction when the market came back. Mm-hmm. And so about 2014, 15, we also started doing new construction. So when that opportunity presented mm-hmm. itself, I had my GC yeah. license, I brought on some partners and we've been doing new construction alongside our flipping business ever mm-hmm. since. And that's mm-hmm. been, uh, again, it was, it was always sort of preparing for when the market came back. You know, it's some, mm-hmm. every year it's like, it got a little harder and a little harder to find good deals every year. Either, you know, we're competing against the hedge funds one year who were buying up everything. The REOs dried up. We bought HUD homes for maybe two or three years straight and just killed it with HUD homes. But every year, to your point, there was always a pivot for us. There was always this, okay, we got to adapt. This this year's different than last year. Mm-hmm. So what is it going to look like? But real estate, just investing in general always worked during those years. It was always a little bit different than the previous year. Mm-hmm. And it really wasn't until, you know, we got the show in 2000. 16, 17 is about when it started airing. I think 17 maybe is when it started airing that we knew, okay, things got to change because we have an opportunity to capitalize on this national exposure. And so let's go go capture the retail market because investing is going to get a little trickier. It's going to get harder to find deals, but there's going to be an awesome retail market. And so that's when we started our brokerage, Red Barn uh, Real Estate. Okay. And that's really where we focused a lot of our attention here the last couple of years is Red Barn Real Estate. We've started a mortgage company. We've got a title company. We've got 230 agents. We do over a thousand transactions a year. It's it's a totally wow. that's kind of where we've pivoted here in in recent years is is going that yeah. retail route. Yeah, that's awesome. So I'm curious with the TV show, how did that opportunity come about? You know, it's funny. Always, people always assume that I called up HGTV and just really wanted to be on TV, and that's so not <laughs> that's the not, case. That's not how it happened. You didn't not want to the be case. Famous. Yeah. You know, interestingly, so in in 2014, uh, our son was diagnosed with cancer, which is interesting that, you know, this would be part of our story, but it is. It was in the summer of 2014. He was four at the time. And we went through this really difficult, traumatic four or five five months where he was treated for Birkin's lymphoma. The happy part of the story is he's a happy, healthy 10-year-old boy right now, but it was a difficult time for us. And we'd actually been asked in previous years if we wanted to go you know, shoot a pilot for this or that. And we'd always said, no, not interested. But for whatever reason, this was a couple months out after he had been treated and he was in remission and and things were good. We were, and honestly, we were just happy that life was kind of going back to normal. We sort of had this mentality of like, you know, you only live once. And so we get this random call and it was just the perfect timing. We're like, you know what? Why not? Let's just, just see where this goes. It could be interesting. And that's, that's in the beginning of 2015. And that led us on this crazy journey of shooting sizzle reels and then a pilot and then a, a first season and then a second season. And, and that went on for you know a handful of years. Well, we're still in the HGTV world. We've, we're working on a couple of shows right now, new, new shows. It just launched us into this totally different world again, which yeah. I don't think we would ever have been open to if we weren't sort of, of, of that mindset. Like, why not? Like you only live once. Let's just see where this mm-hmm. goes. We'll get back to our conversation with Ken in just a minute. 
Have you been thinking about investing in real estate, but aren't sure you have the time or the desire to manage the investment? Perhaps you're afraid, like we were, that you'll make the mistake of choosing the wrong market or the wrong team and lose your entire investment. Well, that's exactly why we created the Good Egg Investor Club. We do the work of identifying solid real estate investment opportunities in the best markets around the country and then partner with you to acquire these investments and then we'll all share in the returns. We'll identify the growing markets, strong, experienced teams, and the solid deals. We do all the heavy lifting of managing the tenants and the renovations, and as a passive partner, you get to enjoy all the benefits of investing in real estate, monthly cash flow, long-term appreciation, and the ongoing tax benefits. When we first discovered passive investing through real estate syndications, we realized it fit perfectly into our busy lives. We could put our money to work for our families, work less, and get more time back in our days so that we could focus on what matters most and discover our true passion and purpose in life. We've now helped hundreds of people invest passively in real estate syndications and are seeing the positive impact it's had on their lives. We invite you to partner with us by joining the Good Egg Investor Club today so you can start putting your money to work for you and get more time back in your day because we know that when people have more time in their days, they can do the true work they were intended to do and the world will be a better place. To sign up for the Good Egg Investor Club, go to goodegginvestments.com slash invest and we'll take it from there. That's goodegginvestments.com slash invest. And now... Back to our chat with Ken Christine. I'm curious, how long did it take you from the time they called you and said, hey, do you want to be on this show till the time you know you guys started filming like the pilots and stuff? It's, a, it's, it's funny because I just had this conversation yesterday with a friend of mine <laughs> who got a call from a production uh-huh. company and they're looking for an HGTV uh-huh. show. Now, I've had a handful of friends that have been tapped for that. And they always, you know, you're obviously super eager. And I just, I just kind of tempered it a little bit. Like it takes a long time. So we got contacted in March of 2015. Uh-huh. And, and so the way it works is you, we did sort of this little Skype. It was a Skype at the time. Nobody was using Zoom. It was Skype. And, <laughs> and so it was a Skype video that they sort of pieced together. And I guess they showed it to the network. The network said, yeah, you know what? Let's do a sizzle reel. Mm-hmm. Well, so a sizzle reel was then filmed that summer of 15. So so many months mm-hmm. later. And they come and they send a crew for two days, mm-hmm. kind of shoot what we do, shoot our business. And then they distill mm-hmm. that down to like a four-minute video. Mm-hmm. Well, then that four-minute video went back to HGTV and it went into their meeting, went into their green light meeting. And amazingly, got greenlit for a pilot, which is a really big deal. There are very few mm-hmm. shows that get greenlit for a pilot. And so that got right. greenlit for a pilot. And we were very exciting. And so it wasn't until November of that year that they came out and we shot that pilot over the course of two months. And it was 10 days of shooting over two months. Well, then that pilot again went back and that aired in like the summer of 16. So here we are a year and a half later. Oh my god! pilot even airs. Uh-huh. The pilot airs under the name Flipping the South. And it, it did well enough, I guess, when they aired it that they ordered yeah. up a season. And then we started filming our first season in like the summer of 16. Uh, and then that didn't air again until the summer of 17. So oh we didn't God. even really make it like a real show on the air for two years later that it actually started oh airing. And that was, the, that was our first season. And that was really in the middle of filming too, that they decided to fold us into the flip or flop franchise. Like that wasn't even mm-hmm. in anybody's purview at the time. It all of a sudden just mm-hmm. sort of, they decided, Hey, let's take all these flipping shows and fold them into this franchise and, and see what happens. And, and that's where we got folded into flip or flop Atlanta. 
Interesting. How fun. How fun yeah. that must have been to what a wild journey. One day you'll look back on all this and be like, wow, what were we? So much fun. <laughs> You're 100% right. Yeah, even now, yeah. kind of looking back on the last couple of years, it's like, what in the world did we just live through? This is crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've always wondered. So behind the scenes of the shows, you know, I, I'm a consumer of HGTV. So I see like the finished shows, but I always wondered behind the scenes, how much does it mirror an actual, like the, the transactions that you've done without the TV show, how much is it the same? How much is it different? How much do, do the production schedule impact things? How does all that work? That's a good question. The production schedule didn't necessarily impact the speed, although maybe it didn't in the sense that we were probably trying to do it quicker because you've only got so much time. So like our, our second season that we filmed, we did 14 episodes and we had to film all of those in eight months. And these are all north of $100,000 remodels. So it was, it was pretty crazy to, to cram you know, $100,000 remodel into like a three-month time frame. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. So in that regard, there we felt the crunch to get them done. But it, it is TV. So you know, in the sense that it's TV, you don't want them all to look the same. Mm-hmm. In reality, when you're a flipper, you, know, you want economies of scale. You want to use the yeah. same materials. You want to use yeah. the same colors, right? You don't, because you want to take the material from one house and take it to the next house. You don't want all this leftover material that you can't use. That's the reality of flipping, where for TV, you want everyone to feel different and feel original. And that's just, it is what it is. But beyond that, I mean, it's very authentic. They are really our houses. They are really our numbers. You know, the drama is real. I mean, it's mostly real. You know, we would probably play up the drama a little bit. You know, if there's mold in the basement, we'd be like, oh yeah, there's mold in the basement. But for TV, it's like, oh no, there's oh, mold no, in the basement. No. What are we going to do? You know, it's- I've never seen this kind of mold before. <laughs> exactly. There's a little more dramatic. And then like then commercial break and you come back and then you right. solve that problem. And so the, I mean, in that sense, but uh, it was a lot of fun. I mean, we had a really good relationship with our crew and with our showrunner, our producers, where it was very collaborative. So we'd show up on set, we'd be at a house, and then we would just collaborate. Like, all right, what are we going to shoot today? What do we want to, what, what are some issues? What's going to make good TV? And, mm-hmm. and it was fun that we had a, a big part in, in kind of creating this show together. And mm-hmm. I think we, we really enjoyed that part of, the, mm-hmm. part of, sh- of shooting. Mm-hmm. I want to go back and talk about Anita, your wife, Anita. Yeah. Where did, cause I know you guys are partners and you, you guys complement each other really well. So talk about that partnership. Did you get married first? Did you start the business first? How did all that happen? Yeah. So we are college sweethearts. So we got married first. We actually, uh, we both met at the university of Georgia and got, let's see, we both graduated in 1999 and we were married immediately after graduating. So we were kids, man. When we got married, we didn't know anything different. And she was a teacher. So she was actually a math major and she became a teacher for those first five, six years or so. She was actually, she's a brain, man. She was an AP calculus teacher at a private school and like a darn good one too. And I liked that really, she was born to be a teacher even more so than like designer people on TV. You know, to see her design side. And she's amazing at that as well. But her first love is really being a teacher. And that's, mm-hmm. she still has these amazing relationships with the kids that she taught back in the day. And so it wasn't really, when I started the business, it was more of one of those things like, Anita, keep teaching just in case this doesn't work out. <laughs> so she taught on her like nothing salary while I sort of gave it a go. And, and it were obviously the real estate side was working out. And so at that time I was like, okay, let's go ahead and have, start having children. You can leave the teaching thing. I think we're good. It was funny. It was right as she finished up teaching, we're about to have our first kid. And I just sort of said, you have to go get your real estate license. And she's like, what? I was like, yeah, 
<laughs> I don't want the license. I don't want to be in a RESPA, but I, I, we need a license. I mean, the, the family has to have a license. So she reluctantly went and got her license that summer and I'm glad she did. So she's been the licensed arm of, of our, our entity ever since. Oh, wow. I mean, I, so much of that story mirrors my story. I felt like you were telling our story. My, my husband and I met in high school, actually, and we got wow. married right after college. Same. And I became a teacher. And my passion is teaching as well, although I love design, too. <laughs> wow. It's so funny. Interesting. Um, and then my husband got into real estate first. He he is a broker now, so he got his license. And then I, I actually said, when he became a real estate agent, I said... Heck, I'm never going to go into real estate. We can't both be in real estate. That would be silly. Uh, and <laughs> look at us now. <laughs> wow, that is too funny. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell us about, so she was with you the whole time you were sort of figuring this out and building this business. So then what is it like to work so closely with your spouse? You know, it's funny. We work the closest when we're filming, you know, mm -hmm. where that's, it's like this intensity when we're not filming, I mean, she's, she sort of does her thing and I sort of do my thing. And we, we sort of come back at the end of the day and talk about it. And she's taking on design clients and listing this house and that house. And I'm, you know, trying to run some of these businesses and, and if they complement each other, but we're definitely not, you know, knocking heads or, you know, during, during the middle of the day, it's more at the end of the day, let's kind of circle up and see how, how your, how's your thing doing? How's my thing doing? Okay, great. Now let's go take the kids to some sports. <laughs> That's essentially yeah. what our day looks like. <laughs> and how, how old are your kids now? So our oldest is, uh, she's 13. And then we have twins, Rocco and Kayla that are 10. And they ah, are all mm -hmm. incredibly active. And we feel like glorified Uber drivers right now, just taking them all over the place. <laughs> Do they know what a big deal their parents are? <laughs> That's hilarious. They, they, yeah, they, yeah. Their parents are definitely not a big deal, but it, they do get a kick out of being recognized in public. That is funny. I think they've had a fun time with that. Have they watched your shows and do they understand how much of the business do they understand? Yeah, they definitely watch the shows. What's funny is we worked them into a lot of the shows, mm. especially like opening scenes and whatnot. So there was always this, they was competing with each other to see who could get the most FaceTime on the show. <laughs> And then, of course, when the show would air, they would, you know, sit there with bated breath to see if they made the show or not. Oh, and so it was funny. always very exciting to see if they made it. Yeah. So it was a family affair. I, I think their favorite part of filming, though, was the fact that craft services, meaning that there was food and snacks on set. <laughs> so like, they'd show up at our house to shoot and they'd be like, all right, where's the food? Where's the snacks? <laughs> That'd be my favorite part, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's one thing they don't tell you when you get into the TV. It's like all the food you can eat. It's fantastic. <laughs> and are they so many entrepreneurs, too? You know, it's funny. My oldest daughter, 13, yeah, she, she's in, she wants to set up a Etsy store and she wants to make t-shirts and, you know, I'm trying to encourage that. But at the same time, I'm, I'm going to let them be kids. I'm going to let them do their sport. And when they ever want to really take something like that serious, if they want to do a YouTube channel and we'll let them do it. I think it'd be fun to see their sp spread their little wings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to ask a quick question before we run out of time. I, mean, I know, you know, flipping houses and making them nice and pretty is really your expertise. And back when I first started to think about after we were moving out of our properties from San Francisco and moving out of state, flipping was something that I had considered, but it was always something that I looked at as very, very risky. So how do you get over that, especially in the market where we're at now, you know, looking back, obviously, in hindsight, it's all very easy to say, ah, that was a no brainer. Flipping was a no-brainer back in 2009, 10, 11, 12. But as we get to where we're at right now in the market, how do you still feel the confidence to be able to do that? Has it been getting harder? Talk to us a little bit about that. It's a great question. You know, 
Back then, our model was a lot less risky because if we didn't sell the house to an investor, we mm -hmm. still had a tenant in place that was paying the nut. Yeah. So there were sometimes houses that maybe we'd sit on our books for a couple months before we sold them to investor, but it, it almost didn't matter because they were cash flowing already anyways. It was a really mm -hmm. good model from that perspective. Mm -hmm. And then over time, I just learned that to have a lot of different arrows in your quiver. You have to be able to pivot even on an individual property. If this property doesn't sell, what's my next strategy? Well, if I can't wholesale it or I can't flip it, do I rent it? Do I Airbnb it? And we've done that. I mean, you do you know, 800 some houses, you're going to have some dogs that you have to figure out how to pivot on. And so over the years, mm -hmm. we've learned if we just miscalculated, then all right, what do we do next? Mm -hmm. How do we get creative with this one and, and move it? Or do we keep it? Or what's the best strategy there? Mm -hmm. I will say though, that here in the last year, our purchasing for flipping has dramatically slowed down mm -hmm. because, yeah. and strategically, because I don't know what, I mean, on election year, there's a lot of questions, obviously. Yep. And with COVID obviously through you, you would have thought it had been a bigger a bigger wrench than it is, but you got to wonder if you know if that's going to catch up with us here before long. And so there's a lot of question marks, and the market's so hot that it's also kind of hard to find a really good deal right now. Mm -hmm. It's like I don't want to buy a marginal deal just to buy. You never want to get stuck in that mindset where you're you know I, well I got this business I got to just keep buying to buy. Mm -hmm. That's when you get burned. And so yeah. when it's time to just slow down and kind of close up the faucet for a little bit, then you figure out how to close it up and just sit tight. And that's sort of where we are, at least on the flipping side of the business. Again, luckily we've diversified. And so we're reaping the rewards of having the retail facing side of the business, which has been really good. And even new construction has mm -hmm. been fantastic for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But at some point, you know, I, I really feel strongly in the next couple of years, I'm going to be back in buying mode again. Mm -hmm. And there's going to yep. be some opportunity. It's just, that's yeah. not where we are today. Yeah. I love what you, you know, when we, when Annie and I always talk about real estate, one of the things that we love is the opportunity to have options, right? In real estate, there's so much flexibility. And that's one of the things that I love of it is, oh, there's mold, there's mold here. Okay. What are we going to do? Right. There's usually many different options. There's not just one exit strategy. Right. And that's the thing that I love about it is it's very flexible and allows for mistakes to be made without too much damage in, you know, yep. most cases, you can always figure out a way to work it with different, you know, solutions, financing solutions and different other kinds of things. So I love, totally. I love that. And I like what you said about, you know, having the arrows in your bag, so to speak, or, you know, just being ready to think about what the next strategy is, because you got to be aware of, of what's happening and be in tune with that and be ready to pivot as we've kind of been talking about. So yeah, gosh, so much good stuff. So, you know, for investors that are out there that are still investing or wanting to invest or wanting to place capital, what advice do you have for them? You've now been in the business for, you know, over a decade. What kind of advice do you have for people who might just be getting into the game right now? Maybe they've been in for the last two or three years and they're fearful obviously, yeah. for a lot of reasons. You know, what are some things that we need to be aware of? Again, I think it's important to be aware of what market cycle you're in. Mm -hmm. So wherever you're in, I, I, there's, I think there's always an opportunity to do business. It's not like now's right. a bad time to get into real estate. I think right. there's, it's always a good time to get into real estate. Yep. Just be highly aware of what market cycle you're in when you get in. Mm -hmm. You know, I see wholesalers, it's harder to find deals, but find a good deal right now, it's gone. Like you're going to sell a good deal and you're going to get premium for it. So I think wholesaling is a real viable strategy right now mm -hmm. if you're a good marketer. Same with flipping. I mean, there's still viable deals out there. But it's probably going to be tough to scale up a really big flipping business, at least in a hot metropolitan area. You know, maybe in a smaller you know, mid-tier market might be a little easier to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, buy and hold still makes sense in some places, but I think that there's going to be a lot of more buy and hold opportunities here in the next couple of years. And so for me, I, I bought and hold a handful of stuff two years ago, maybe one or two last year. But this year, I haven't bought one single buy and hold because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit tight and just kind of 
wait and see when, when the opportunity presents itself. So again, mm-hmm. you never buy to buy. You never, you never invest just for the sake of investing. Make sure that it's a wise investment, that it's a wise move, and it makes sense for where you are in the market. And I'm going to ask you a crystal ball question here. When do you think that opportunity is going to come based on everything that you kind of see happening? <laughs> You're asking the wrong guy. <laughs> Nobody ever handed me out that crystal ball, unfortunately. I mean, I would have told you in March when COVID hit, I was like, oh man, we're toast. It's coming. Yeah. You know, I, and yeah. who would have thought? Like we had record-breaking months in our brokerage over the summer. I never would have thought that would have been the case. Yeah. Yeah. So, but at the you got to pay the piper eventually, right? I mean, you got a lot of people out of work and a lot of defaults right now. And unless yeah. the government, I mean, just continues and continues to subsidize and step in at some point, you got to pay the piper. And I, I don't know when yeah. that's going to happen, but I think it's coming. Yeah. Well, we do too. I mean, I think, you know, sometime in the next six to 12 months, we're going to start to see, see some stuff come online for sure. So yeah, I think we're all in the same boat. We'll be sitting there <laughs> on yeah. the sidelines waiting for the opportunities. So absolutely. Yeah. All right. Let's move into the investing for good impact round. We're going to ask you a couple of questions around investing for good. Okay. The first question is investing in yourself. So what is one way that real estate is helping you to live a better life? Freedom. I can sum it up with freedom. It's that feeling when you're working a nine to five and you're staring at the clock and you know, you're going to have to get in your car and drive an hour in traffic to get home. And you're just like, this sucks. I do not enjoy this. The day that I unplugged, I say it was one of the best days of my life because even though I work, I I felt like, especially for this first handful of years, I worked harder than I did in my corporate job Mm -hmm. where but it was the fact that I had my, I was setting my own schedule. I was working yep. when I wanted to work. I was working as hard or as little as I wanted to work. Naturally, I was motivated to work hard. But I mean, I even look at like today is a perfect example of the fact that I work from home. I wear blue jeans with holes in them. I took my kids to lunch because <laughs> I can, you know, we jumped in the Jeep, and went for a ride today. Took, mm-hmm. And this is in the middle of the day. I mean, you can't do this if you're working a nine to five mm-hmm. and we take a lot of trips, travel and being together is very important. We've, I mean, honestly, over the course of a year, we probably take six or seven weeks of vacation time. Just again, just investing in our family and, and the businesses run themselves and it's taken years to get there. We've got good people in place where the businesses sort of run on autopilot to some extent. Mm-hmm. That's why we invested the way we did is so that we could live this life. Yeah. God, I love that. I love that. Investing in family and, you know, owning your own time. I still remember when I drove away from my job, when I left, it was March 9th. It was a Friday, March 9th, 2018. I'll never forget. And it's almost been, you know, this next March will have been three years and it literally feels like it was yesterday. It's just how, how quickly time has gone by, but, you know, just having that freedom to be able to own my time is, has been the most valuable thing for me as well. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. All right. Second question, investing in others. So what is one investment strategy or life hack or something that you might be able to share with the audience that'll help them catapult their investing journey? So I came out with an info product, I don't know, two or three years ago. And I I literally just turned it on the other day, just made it free because I just want to give it out because I think it's so good. And it's called off-market profits Mm -hmm. because I think that the way to be successful in real estate is to figure out how to buy houses and properties that are not listed on on the MLS. Mm -hmm. That's really how you're going to make, how you're going to be successful. You have to find the deals that nobody knows about. You have to talk to motivated sellers who you know are in a situation where they're ready to sell quickly. Mm-hmm. And the guys that are successful wholesalers and flippers, they have cracked that nut. And if you haven't started working on figuring out how to buy off-market properties, you're spinning your wheels. You're never going to mm-hmm. scale. You're never going to get those home runs. You might hit some base hits off the MLS, but you're never going to hit home run. Mm-hmm. 
So I've made it free for your listeners. It's just offmarketprofits.net and they are welcome to go through. It's a four hour course and there is tons of good information that I'm just giving away on how to hack different websites, you know, different strategies that we employ in our business to find deals. So feel free to pass Love that it. on. Love it. And is that, does that apply only to single family homes or small multis, multifamily as well? These strategies work for multifamily as well. And even commercial, because a lot of times it's just, you know, outbound marketing and who, where are you getting your lists from? Who are you calling? You know, those sorts of things. So yeah, I think it applies across the different property types. Nice. I have to sign right. up for that as soon as we finish yep, this conversation. I'm wrote it down. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last question is investing in the world. So what is one thing that you're doing right now to make the world a better place? So this is a, a big part of who we are. This is part of our DNA is we, we actually invest in a number of different local ministries and charitable organizations. But I think the one that's nearest and dearest to us is our own. We have a foundation mm-hmm. called Rockstar Kids. And that's just ROC, no K there, because our son's name is Rocco. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of Oh. really because of him in honor of him going through cancer. And so it's mm-hmm. specifically geared toward the childhood cancer community oh, because there are so many kids. We of all people can empathize with where they're at. And so there's a lot right. of families in our community that are going through it. And so we support a number of families. We also su- support a number of different sort of cutting edge treatments that we're trying to get behind because mm-hmm. so little funding goes towards childhood cancer and people don't realize that. Yeah, It's like yeah. 4% of the National Institute of Cancer's funding goes towards childhood cancer. It's just yeah. ridiculous. And a lot of the same treatments that they were using on children 40 years ago are the same ones they're using on kids today, which just is, it's unbelievable to be honest. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's a big cause for us. It's very important to us. And so, uh, and if you ever, if you end up on our website, there's a whole kind of write up. There's some pictures. It's a big part of who we are. Our website is, if you don't mind me saying, it's redbarnhomes.com. Yes. You can also get there to Rockstar Kids. But there's a whole section on Rockstar Kids. Mm-hmm. It's a big part of who we are. It's it's important in our businesses, and you know, it's, it's just a huge need in our communities. Bottom line. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, speaking of your website, is there anywhere else you would like to send people to learn more about all that you do and to connect with you? Tell people how to get the book. Yeah. So uh, you can get to the book through our website, redbarnhomes.com. Uh, you can also go straight there to it's biggerpockets.com forward slash profit like the pros. Again, that's the name of the book, profit like the pros. It's a fantastic book. I'll be honest. It was one of those things. I'm writing the book, interviewing 25 different investors, and I was inspired. My whole goal was to inspire other people. And I'm writing, I'm talking to these people, and it was highly inspirational to even to, to me as well. So feel free to check it out. I think it's, I think it'll be good. Awesome. Well, Ken Corsini, real estate investor, entrepreneur, real estate nerd, founder with his wife, Anita of Red Barn Homes, co-host of the HGTV show, Flip or Flop Atlanta, and host of the Deal Farm podcast and author. I didn't even mention that. There's so many. There's so many accolades. Ah, Well, Ken, thank you so much for being here, sharing your experience and your wisdom with us today. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Investing for Good, the number one podcast for people like you who are investing to build a legacy for their families, create a meaningful and intentional life by design, and impact the world around them. For more resources, check out goodegginvestments.com slash podcast. And be sure to join the Investing for Good Facebook community. And don't forget to subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring you amazing new conversations every week. Until next time, keep investing for good.